Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST site, my own website, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business on the Apple Podcast Store or on my website, leongetler.com. I'm Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 37 in our series for 2022, and today's date is Friday, October the 14th. First, I'll be talking to Oleg Vornik, CEO of DroneChilled, a company that is creating local, high-tech jobs, creating a pathway for grads to get into complex engineering, AI sensor fusion, and building advanced technologies in the form of counter-drone systems right out of Sydney. These protect everything from critical infrastructure to sporting events to airports and more. And I'll be talking to Comsec Chief Economist Craig James about what's ahead in the market next week. But now, let's talk to Oleg Vornik. Well, Oleg, tell us about Drone Shield. Drone Shield is a seven-year-old business focused on detection and defeat of nefarious drones. So if you think of small drones like what you buy in JB Hi-Fi being used by criminals to smuggle contraband like cell phones or weapons into prisons, drones being used at airports or being flown at airports to stop traffic that is quite dangerous for airplanes and probably most topical today being used in warfare. So in the Ukraine-Russian war, both sides using drones extensively for field reconnaissance, directing artillery strikes and general intel gathering and dropping charges, of course, direct attack using drones, small drones as well as big ones. That's very much the kind of problem set that we focus on today. Okay, and you, but you work with national security and other public and private sector organisations? That's right. Defence, Homeland Security and Intel agencies are by far the biggest set of customers we have and other customers include airports, prisons and, and other government-like kind of customers. I think over and critical uh, and utilities, uh, so uh, like power and water utilities. I think over time, the customer set will extend towards more corporate and VIP customers. But today, government agencies are a bulk of people who work with. I believe recently you completed shipments to Ukraine. Is that right? That's right. So we made a shipment under a military aid contract to Ukraine right at the start of the war at the end of February. 
and we're now in discussions with a number of other government agencies in addition to the one that we worked with first time to have follow-on shipments. And how's that business going? Look, for Ukraine side of it, it's of course an absolute strategy and we are pleased to help in every way we can. So the equipment we shipped was both for detection and defeat of nefarious drones and, and we look forward to providing more. Look, um, on the defence side, Australia is very over-reliant on imports, aren't we? If you look, traditionally, we have very much imported American, British and French kit, amongst others. And I think that will continue. A few years ago, Australia recognised that it's not all about just getting best kit for that moment in time, but also building sovereign industry and this now created a fairly flourishing industry that we are proud to be a part of. Australia is a relatively small country by population, but we're actually 12th largest defense spender in the world. We cannot do everything because of our size. We're not the United States, but the government has identified certain key priorities, key areas of interest, so things like robotics, hypersonic weapons, and, and so forth. And, and our business, which is very much in that robotics, counter-robotics, electronic warfare space, is part of those priorities. So you, you, are, you are actually very much an Australian homegrown defence industry company. Very much so. So we are 60 people, about 15 Sydney, and 10 roughly in the US with Virginia offices, our gateway into the US market. 40 engineers are all based in Australia, vastly, vast majority in Sydney. The, the products are designed here, built here. The company SX listed is substantially Australian owned. So we have about 8,000 Australian mom and dad shareholders. All of the directors are Australian-based, Australian citizens with a majority with Australian defence clearances. So, yeah, we, we consider ourselves 100% Australian defence business. I mean, this is, this is very important because Ed Husik is really pushing to bring skilled Australians back home. And uh, we're looking really to increase our skills base. So what role would uh, Drone Shield play in that? We are a high-tech defence business. There are a lot of companies fulfilling important roles, but I would consider some with more lower tech, so things like CNC machining, metal bending, cable looming, and so forth. We are very much at the high end of the equation, so things like FPGA engineering, waveform design, overall product design, and this requires very high-skilled engineers. It took us quite some time to build the right base. We roughly doubled in size over the last two years and we are continuing to slowly grow. But this is very much a talent game. I, I completely agree. It takes a long time to build a skill set. It's unusual to have the kind of skill sets that we require. But I suppose for us on the upside, we don't have to compete with the likes of Facebook and Amazon um, or, or SpaceX here in Australia, which makes it a little easier. So, so how do you go about recruiting the talent? There's no simple answer. So you go through a network of existing employees. So our internal referrals are a big part of the picture. We work with a number of recruiters. We 
advertised roles. And also over time, we build quite a bit of brand equity. So if you are in high-end defense space, chances are you heard of Drone Shield and we're very much employer of, of choice. The team has now been fairly stable, especially at the senior level. So for a seven-year-old business, most of the um, employees at this sort of a C-suite been with us for five years plus, and we're just continuing to build out targeted uh, targeted placement. So no simple answer, Liam. Uh, you, you just kind of have to keep looking for needles and haystacks when it comes to high-end employees. So how many jobs have you created over the past 12 months? Over the past 12 months, we hired probably about five or seven people out of the uh, 60 or so that we have. And most of these would be technical roles? Yeah, that's right. So we, in addition to technical roles, we do have corporate roles, sales roles, but even our sales roles are fairly technical in nature. Uh, so for example, uh, a guy, the guy who runs our Australian sales got two engineering degrees and that's just the nature of our work. I mean, I don't consider myself technical by drone shoot standards, but I have a mathematics degree. So because the products involve so much high technology, it's, it, it's almost a requirement that you have technical background, even if you're not an engineer in the business. So tell me, uh, what's the future for DroneShoot? What are your growth plans? Counter Drone has come a long way from when we started. As back then, people used to say, well, why, why are you running this business? Drones are toys. And, and now I think it's pretty clear to all the customers we're talking with that it's a rapidly emerging industry. So this will continue to get larger. And US, Australia, and Europe with the Ukraine conflict are by far our largest markets alongside of uh, Middle East and South America and Southeast Asia. Electronic warfare and ISR are adjacent markets for us. What I mean by adjacent is it's all about looking for small bits of small nuggets of information in, in sea of data. So using AI to solve classic big data problems. So in counter drone, of course, it's about detecting a drone behind signals like Wi-Fi routers and Bluetooth and so forth and doing it quite precisely. In electronic warfare, it could mean detecting and tracking a missile or an enemy tank or frigate. And ISR tasks unrelated to drones could be potentially locking on an object with a camera and tracking it against complex backgrounds. So these are all the capabilities that we developed over the last several years and I think will continue to grow quickly. Do you see it moving also into other areas? I mean, obviously it has a role in airports and other, and other businesses. So do you see that expanding as well? 100%. So airports have been somewhat slower on the uptake compared to the militaries and Homeland Security agencies. We recently announced the first US airport deployment and we expect that to grow into more over time. Two most common questions customers ask when we start talking to them is how much and who else got it? So having those initial deployments is the hardest, but then you can mushroom and, and kind of grow the business from there. Prisons, as I already mentioned, so delivery of the contraband. US is a fascinating market because a number of individual states have 20 plus prison facilities in those um, in those states. And if you start with one, you can quickly expand across more. 
power generation, uh, including nuclear power, is, is a big focus for us. In Australia, there's recently been a act passed, uh, Critical uh, Infrastructure Protection Act, which obliges critical infrastructure operators to consider all aspects of their security. So counter-drone security comes into it. So all, all of that is, is pretty key. And recently also there's been an article published by Insurance Australia magazine, which talked about a drone, uh, potentially drone being the cause of the ever given ship block in Suez Canal by essentially creating a cyber attack, launching on the roof of, of the ship and, and uh, hacking into the system and saying, you know, X dollars in Bitcoin in the next 24 hours, so we'll run the ship into the ground. Uh, so cyber threats I, I, using drones as a delivery mechanism, I think, would be another big area. Well, Oleg, that's all fascinating. And thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Leon. Much appreciate being here. And now let's talk to Comsec Chief Economist, Craig James. Well, Craig, what's ahead of the market for the week starting October 10th? Well, it's, it's probably an uninspiring week uh, or an audacious week in terms of the domestic schedule. If you look through you know, the, the releases, basically they're all basically from the, the second shelf or the second tier uh, economic indicators. We've got a gauge on business spending called business turnover. That's produced by the Bureau of Statistics. That's coming out on, on Monday. And there's also a gauge on the, the job sector, the Internet Vacancy Index that's coming out on Monday as well. Tuesday, there's a lot of focus on the Aussie consumer. There's the weekly and the monthly gauges of consumer confidence. And also on the same day, we've got the household spending indicator from the Bureau of Statistics. And then we've got household spending intentions report from ComBank. And certainly the Reserve Bank Governor said he will be looking very closely at the Aussie consumer for a guidance about uh, rate hikes, the size and the timing of yes, rate hikes yes, going forward. Also on Tuesday, we've got overseas arrivals and departures. On Wednesday, we've got a speech by one of the Reserve Bank officials, the Assistant Governor of Economic. Uh, so the, the, at this stage, no, no topic for discussion has been set down, but look for, for closely at the, that one. And then uh, later in the week on Thursday, We've got the payroll jobs and wages report. This is a more timely indicator in terms of jobs and wage trends in the economy. But economists basically haven't found a way to use it properly yet. So it certainly hasn't set the world on fire. Now, while the domestic schedule has been, yes, it looks to be fairly uninspiring, there's a greater focus in the United States markets and also in terms of China. Of course, the major focus around the world at the moment is inflation. And uh, that's very much you know, in focus in the United States. On Wednesday, there will be the measure of producer prices. On Thursday, consumer prices. And then uh, on Friday, the, the trade prices or international trade prices, the export and import prices, they'll be coming out on, on Friday. Also over the week, we'll get a measure of what's happening with retail spending. So that'll be important. And uh, also the minutes of the last Federal Reserve meeting will be released on Wednesday. That'll be Thursday morning our time. And uh, we'll get to see you know, so what sort of discussion they're, they're having at the moment in terms of rate settings, how many are favouring uh, smaller rate hikes rather than bigger rate hikes and so forth. And the other thing to focus on is a number of indicators coming out from China. China's got inflation figures coming out on Friday, which are producer and consumer prices. China's also got some trade figures coming out on Friday. And a day earlier, 
some of the lending indicators, things like money supply, new loans and uh, loans outstanding will be released on the Thursday. So it's probably fair to say we'll be setting our sights more on terms of the United States markets and the the gauges on consumer prices rather than you know, in terms of the, the local indicators. Inflation in the US seems to be powering along quite strongly. Yeah, a major concern that inflation is holding up, despite the aggression that we're seeing in terms of central banks, particularly from the US Federal Reserve, uh, we're yet to see you know, sort of meaningful reductions or, or even you know, early indications of uh, significant you know, declines in uh, inflation. Producer prices in the United States, currently, if we look at the headline measure, running at an 8.7% annualised rate. If we look at the underlying measures, stripping out uh, food and energy, 7.3%. So both those figures are certainly super high. If we look at consumer prices, a little bit lower than the producer prices. Consumer prices, uh, 8.3% higher than 12 months ago. Uh, take out food and energy and you're up in the order of 6.3%. So it doesn't matter which way you cut it, though. Effectively, the Federal Reserve is looking for 2% inflation or perhaps 25 uh, It's currently sitting at around about 7s and 8s. So one of the other things to come out you know, in the coming week, particularly with inflation, the focus, uh, on Tuesday in the United States, they've got from the Federal Reserve Bank of New York the Consumer Inflationary Expectation Survey. So this gives us an idea about consumers and what they're viewing inflation at the moment. And they've got a, currently got a reading of 5.7%. So uh, we'd love to, like to see you know, that one heading south. If that one heads south in, in a big way, we're likely to see you know, the headline and underlying measures of the actual prices sort of slowing as well. It's interesting because, uh, I mean, last time people were talking about uh, the Federal Reserve bringing 100 basis points, but they didn't. But it would indicate, though, that for all their strong rate rises, it's not having any impact. Yes, I suppose the, the, the point is that um, they talk about monetary policy working with long and variable lags. And uh, just because you've increased interest rates, you know, the next day it's not going to show up in terms of the economy. Uh, it takes a while for the, um, the higher repayments to, to be able to filter down into the ordinary uh, consumer or business. And then for those businesses then and consumers responding, in terms of um, what they're going to cut back in terms of spending and how they're going to uh, accommodate you know, the higher loan re- repayments. So uh, I think we're, we're probably you know, sort of going a little bit too hard, too, too fast and not allowing you know, sort of a degree of time for, for settling in. I suppose the, the central banks are su- super worried at the moment is that um, these higher rates of inflation, the longer that they stay high, the greater potential for them to stay locked in for a longer period of time. That's certainly something that central banks don't want to see. So I think, if anything, we are going to see central banks erring on the side of pushing economies into recession to be able to get their inflation objectives rather than just tiptoeing around the place. Uh, That's also been a major concern about the RBA. Yes, in terms of the, the Reserve Bank, they've already got one wrong in terms of saying that interest rates weren't going to rise until... 2024, and uh, certainly they had to increase rates a whole lot earlier than that. Uh, the, you know, the last thing they would want to see now is they're be, becoming too aggressive in terms of lifting interest rates and not allowing for, for time in checking to see how those uh, rate hikes are uh, impacting on the economy because if we go into recession, there will be a, a yet another new spotlight on the, um, the Reserve Bank for, again, getting it wrong 
lifting rates too hard and too too far. So the central banks around the world have got to watch this situation, look at the indicators very, very closely, really pay you know, sort of much more than the usual amount of attention. And even to, to some of the more, not is it probably second tier or a third shelf or a third tier indicators, things like consumer inflationary expectations in the United States, they don't usually you know, sort of justify a lot of attention, but they've got greater importance in the current environment because inflationary expectations are super important. Yes, you know, sort of, uh, as I said before, and yes, sort of, uh, these in, ex- expectations are locked in, uh, then it's going to be a whole lot harder to be able to get inflation down to, to the uh, target band. It would indicate, though, certainly that uh, monetary policy does have its limitations. Oh, it certainly does. Uh, when you think about you know, sort of the Australian uh, consumers, uh, something like a third of Aussie consumers are renting. Around about a third have paid off their home loans and a third are actually buying the home. They've got a mortgage. So you think about rate hikes and you know, so where the impact is really going to be felt. Well, it's going to be felt in terms of a more negative area in terms of those people buying their, their homes. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. It's uh, in terms of renters, it could actually be more positive rather than negative because renters are accumulating savings to be able to, to, to buy homes. Uh, and also to um, ensure they can meet the, the rent repayment so they're keeping money in the bank. And if they're getting you know, so high returns on the, those funds, that's a, certainly a sort of positive indication. The other thing is those people who paid their homes, uh, uh, home loans out, you know, so they own their homes outright, uh, those uh, people uh, invariably have got the money in the bank and uh, they want to see interest rates rise. And they benefit from that, you know, sort of, and it supports um, not just their their, contri- their confidence levels, but it supports their actual spending levels, you know, sort of as well. And that's hard for for the Reserve Bank because uh, how do you, you know, sort of target these things? You can't say to to banks you can't increase interest rates for the, the depositors and only increase those for for the the borrowers. It it is the case that yes, you know, so the central banks have got to do some heavy lifting in the current environment. The $64 question is what's going to be happening with inflation? Well, it's going to come down. Uh, that's our expectation. That's certainly the expectation of the Reserve Bank and also the government, that your hike rates are high enough and far enough and fast enough, uh, then you are going to see an impact in terms of the economy. And particularly here in Australia, where most people have got variable loans rather than fixed loans, uh, but even with those on people on fixed loans, once we get into late, much later this year and into next year, we've got a large cohort of uh, people that are having to um, trade where the fixed loan period ends and they're they're having to select 
either a variable loan or another fixed loan term to to be able to roll over into, and um, they're going to see a very substantial increase in terms of their home loan re- repayment cost, and that's going to have a big impact on the economy. And that's something that the Reserve Bank has certainly got to keep you know sit on top of their mind as well. Right. Well, Craig, it's been fascinating to talk to you, and thank you very much for your time. Not a problem at all. So what's happening in the news? Well, the International Monetary Fund predicts global growth will slow to 2.7% next year, 0.2 percentage points lower than its July forecast, and it anticipates 2023 will feel like a recession for millions around the world. Aside from the global financial crisis and the peak of the COVID-19 pandemic, this is the weakest growth profile since 2001, the IMF said in its World Economic Outlook, published on Tuesday. Its GDP estimate for this year remains steady at 3.2%, which was down from the 6% seen in 2021 echoing warnings from the United Nations, the World Bank and many global CEOs. The IMF downgraded its its expectations for Australia's economy, tipping it to grow by 1.9% through 2023, with inflation to average 4.8% next year. In April, the IMF was forecasting the local economy to grow by 2.5% next year, with inflation around 2.7%. And the post-COVID recovery has rapidly run out of steam, as many countries hit or near the brink of outright recession amid heightened uncertainty and rising risks, a new economic analysis has warned. The latest twice-yearly Brookings Financial Times tracking index found that growth momentum, as well as financial market and confidence indicators, had deteriorated markedly in recent months, as soaring prices and geopolitical uncertainty fuel lead economic pessimism across the world's major economic economies. Confidence indicators have fallen sharply and are at all-time lows since the index began over a decade ago in countries including the US, UK and China. In emerging economies, which are more exposed to rising food and energy prices, confidence has fallen even more sharply. The United Nations last week warned that developing nations, in particular those in Asia, could bear the brunt as monetary and fiscal policies in advanced economies, including continued interest rate hikes, push the world towards a global recession and stagnation. Eswar Prasad, senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, said the index's findings reflected a series of self-inflicted wounds by businesses and governments ranging from Britain's financial turmoil after the announcement of major unfunded tax cuts and China's zero-COVID policy. Prasad said energy supply disruptions were fueling inflation and constraining growth in European economies, with prospects of energy shortages in the winter damaging private sector confidence. Boris Johnson is a politician who went bust in July when his Conservative Party colleagues forced him to resign as Prime Minister. Boris Johnson, the business, on the other hand, is about to make a small fortune. Political observers in England expect that Boris Inc. will follow the path of previous British leaders and become a one-man private corporation, offering two products, a memoir and speeches. A born performer who offers a singular mix of gravitas and japery, he will market qualities that once charmed millions of voters, including a shambolic head of blonde hair and an impish smile that says, I won't take anything too seriously until I absolutely must. What he won't do, a biographer predicts, is immediately angle for a return to power or criticise his successor, Liz Trust, who has managed to crater both her poll numbers and the British pound in just a few weeks in office. If he chooses to, he will join the lecture circuit at an ideal moment. The most lucrative live events, like corporate conferences and annual meetings, have come roaring back in recent months after a two-year hiatus caused by the pandemic. In late September, the Clinton Global Initiative held its first in-person conference since 2019, as did Fast Company's Innovation Festival. Mr Johnson is expected to fetch as much as $250,000 per speech, and even more for his first outing or two, say executives at speakers' bureaus. Because he remains a Member of Parliament, he will need to report that income publicly through what is called the Register of Members' Financial Interests. 
In 2019, after he quit the Foreign Secretary post, he reported earning £122,000, that's US dollars from Living Media in India for a three-hour speaking engagement, a payday he is likely to routinely exceed now. And more than ever, he needs the money. A 58-year-old with two divorces, a third wife and six children, Mr Johnson earned £157,000 as Prime Minister, about US dollars Along with those high overhead costs, the man has expensive tastes. When he and her third wife redecorated their official residence at number 11 Downing Street, an invoice leaked to the Independent showed that their work costs £200,000, that's US dollars including a £3,675 drinks trolley and a pair of sofas that cost more than £15,000. Mr Johnson was accused in news reports of using Conservative Party donations to cover some of the renovations, and he repaid the money. For the biggest paydays for speeches, he'll need to leave the United Kingdom. And former US Federal Reserve Chair Ben Bernanke has won the Nobel Prize in Economic Sciences, along with two other US-based economists, for their research into the fallout from bank failures. Mr Bernanke, Douglas Diamond and Philip Dibvik were given the nod for having significantly improved our understanding of the role of banks in the economy, particularly during financial crises, as well as how to regulate financial markets, the jury said. Mr Bernanke, 68, the chair of the US Federal Reserve between 2006 and 2014, was highlighted for his analysis of the worst economic crisis in modern history, the Great Depression in the 1930s. And Treasurer Jim Chalmers has warned that a big and widening gap between the Reserve Bank of Australia's cash rate and other global central banks risks driving down the Australian dollar, pushing inflation higher and forcing interest rates to rise more than expected. Speaking ahead of flying to Washington for the G20 Finance Minister's meeting and annual meetings of the International Monetary Fund and World Bank, Dr Chalmers said blunt, brutal and in some ways necessary global rate rises would push many advanced economies into recession. We're headed for a substantial global downturn and we won't be immune from that, he said. Though it was not his expectation Australia would suffer a similar fate and a recession would not be forecast in the October budget. Chalmers said while it was clear the global economy was deteriorating, he believed Australia was in a strong position to defy a local recession. He said the downgrade to global growth had implications for Australia's GDP and unemployment forecasts. And the Australian dollar was being steamrolled by world recession fears. Mounting global recession risks and rising coronavirus cases in China sent the Australian dollar to its lowest level in two and a half years on Monday, as the US dollar resumed its domination of the foreign exchange market and traders sought safe haven. The Australian dollar could fall below US 62 cents this week, according to Commonwealth Bank, as financial markets brace for the latest snapshot of US inflation due on Thursday. The currency slumped to US 63.04 cents at Monday's session low, which is the weakest cross rate since April 2020. The US dollar rose against major currency and held its lead after positive jobs data in the US on Friday, reinforced the case for the Federal Reserve to stick to its aggressive interest rate path. And underlying inflation is set to surge above 6% in the September quarter, the fastest pace since December 1990, according to the latest National Australia Bank Business Survey. NAB Group Chief Economist Alan Oster said a result of that magnitude would indicate a considerable acceleration and broadening of inflation in Australia that would ultimately put pressure on interest rates. And Alinta has warned that Australia faces a new cost of living shock, with power prices forecast to soar by at least 35% in 2023, as the early closure of coal-fired electricity generators creates a rocky energy transition. With households already reeling from six consecutive interest rate hikes and double-digit food inflation, the nation's fourth largest electricity retailer has predicted a steep hike in electricity tariffs amid a global supply crunch.
The huge jump in electricity and gas costs echoes soaring prices in the UK, which prompted protests and consumers to burn their energy bills. Households have already been slugged this winter with an increase in power, their power bills of hundreds of dollars as tight supply pushes up wholesale electricity prices and Russia's invasion of Ukraine inflates international commodity markets. AMP Chief Economist Shane Oliver said if the Linter's predictions were realised, it would add an extra 0.6% to inflation and put pressure on the Reserve Bank to be more aggressive in raising interest rates. Australian Industry Group Chief Executive Innes Willocks said business leaders would not be surprised by Linter's forecast. We're just at the start of the price rises and more pain is to come, Mr Willocks said. The market thinks energy prices will be lower beyond 2023 and that renewables will keep displacing coal and gas, but that doesn't look as though it will happen fast or as quickly as it should. Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry Chief Executive Andrew McKellar said higher power prices threaten the viability of industry and will hurt households. And Solomon Liu is on a collision course with Meyer after rejecting a direct request from the retailer's chairwoman, Joanne Stevenson, to stop increasing his shareholding unless he makes a takeover bid for the entire company. Mr Liu, already the company's largest investor, has also refused to commit to a majority independent Meyer board, as requested by the department's store chair. The dispute was outlined in an annual meeting notice released by Meyer on Monday, in which Premier Investments, a retailer controlled by Mr Liu, has nominated Meyer Grace Brothers boss Terence McCartney for the board. Mr McCartney is director of Premier Investments, and the Meyer board has declined to make a recommendation to shareholders on whether to support or reject his election. Meyer annual meetings have in the past descended into public disputes, including in 2020, when the company's then-chairman, Gary Hounsell, was forced to quit only hours before the start of the meeting, after it became clear Mr Liu and other investors would not support his re-election. Premier Investments, with a 23% stake in Meyer, could now push Ms Stevenson to step aside. AGL Energy's largest investor, Mike Cannon-Brooks, has launched a campaign to convince shareholders to vote for board renewal after the power giant batted away its proposal for a string of new director appointments. The energy company's board said on Friday it would support the nomination of only one of the four directors nominated by Mr Cannon Brooks, Mark Trudell, setting AGL up for a showdown with the Atlassian billionaire at its November 15 annual meeting. Mr Cannon Brooks wrote to investors on Tuesday saying it would soon mail out instructions on how to vote for its favoured directors at or before the meeting. Grock believes each independent candidate will bring unrivaled experience and capability to AGL's board. For this reason, we're encouraging all AGL shareholders to vote in favour of Christine Holman, Professor John Polliers, OAM, Dr Kerry Schott, AO, and Mark Twiddell, Mr Brooks said, as part of his private vehicles campaign. We believe the existing AGL board needs help, particularly with executing on strategy and fresh ideas. Today, AGL only has five directors on its board. We consider this unacceptable for a company of AGL scale, let alone a company that has failed to keep up in a rapidly transforming industry, the letter reads. Grock said the candidates will not be its representatives if elected, and will both consider decisions and vote independently. It accused AGL's strategic review released in late September as failing to align the company with the 1.5 degree Paris climate outlook. And the Prudential Regulator said it's only a matter of time before one of the nation's financial institutions is hit with a cyber attack. Australian Prudential Regulation Authority Chairman Wayne Burrs, speaking at a parliamentary committee hearing on Tuesday, said the financial sector had made huge amounts of investment in cyber defence as he singled out cyber and climate risks as among the biggest challenges facing financial system. But a cyber attack on one of Australia's financial institutions will happen at some point in the future, he warned. Financial institutions, at least in the broader context, are quite advanced in cybersecurity. But what we also know is that at some point, some sort of event will happen. 
It doesn't matter what sort of defences you put in place, he said. And Prime Minister Anthony Albanese has shelved plans to amend the statutory tax cuts in the October 25 budget on the basis that it was too politically risky to break a promise so close to the last election. Although the government has yet to rule out pairing back the tax cuts before they begin in July 2024, the weight of opinion inside Labor against breaking a key promise and the political backlash put an end to a possible move in the October budget, led by Treasurer Jim Chalmers. Despite the backlash, Mr Albanese and his ministers again refused to rule out definitively pairing back the tax cuts at subsequent budgets before the tax cuts begin. Instead, they repeated the talking point distributed to all MPs last week, instructing them to say only that the government's position has not changed. And Optus will undergo a new leg- regulatory probe into whether it took reasonable steps to protect the personal data of 9.8 million Australians, which a hacker stole last month and brutally posted for sale online. The Office of the Australian Information Commissioner said on Tuesday it had begun its investigation. The OIIC's investigation will focus on whether the Optus companies took reasonable steps to protect the personal information they held from misuse, interference, loss, unauthorised access, modification or disclosure, the OIIC said, and whether the information collected and retained was necessary to carry out their business, the regulator said. It comes amid intense debate over whether the Optus breach was simple, as argued by the government, with an unprotected application programming interface leaving it vulnerable to attack, or if a hack was more sophisticated, as Optus says. The telco has engaged Deloitte to review the breach, but will not publish the findings. The OAIC said its investigation would be coordinated with Telco Regulator, the Australian Communications and Media Authority, which is also investigating the breach. The inquiry will be coordinated with one conducted by the Australian Communications and Media Authority, which will investigate Optus's obligations regarding customer information as a telecommunications provider. Chair of the Australian Competition Consumer Commission, Gina Cascotlieb, said scammers were taking advantage of the large-scale data breach and posing as a telecommunications giant, or Equifax, Protect, the credit reporting agency tasked with supporting victims of the breach to swindle consumers. She told the Parliamentary Committee people were confused about the legitimacy of the communications. So far, Ms Cascotlieb said there had only been a few instances of forces successfully scamming victims out of money by pretending to be from Optus. The consumer watchdog has been flooded with Optus-related scam complaints following the data breach. And Australia's National Science Agency, CSIRO, has announced it is helping to tackle the growing threat of cyber attacks facing Australia by providing free research and development support to businesses working in the cybersecurity sector. The CSIRO said today that small and medium-sized enterprises working on new cybersecurity solutions can join the free 10-week online Innovate to Grow program being offered to support their idea with research and development. And on completion of the program, participants may be able to access support through CSIRO to connect to research expertise nationally along with dollar-matched R&D funding. Under the program, business will also tap into CSIRO's own cybersecurity expertise through Data61. CSIRO's data and digital specialist arm, and be exposed to industry knowledge, hear from innovation and industry experts, and work with an R&D mentor. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Renee Thornton, General Manager of Rehab Management, a leading corporate health provider. According to Safe Work Australia, more than half a million Australians sustain a work-related injury or illness each year at an estimated cost of $61.8 billion. This impacts the health system, economy and society in a multitude of ways, including loss of productivity, income and quality of life. Workplace and rehabilitation is a process of providing guidance and support to an injured worker to enable safe and timely return to work after an injury or illness. It is about finding the best ways for the worker to remain at work and be engaged with the workplace while keeping their valuable skills. And I'll be talking to economist Nicholas Green. 
In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn and YouTube. And if you want, leave a comment. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business on the Apple Podcast Store or on my website, leongetler.com. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing Talking Business next week. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 